0: And welcome back to the second segment of episode four of Security and Compliance Weekly. I'm your host, Mr. Jeff Mann, joined also by Matt Alderman, Scott Lyons, and now we even have Josh Marpet with us. Uh, Josh and Scott are luxuriating in sunny and very warm Miami, while the rest of us are enjoying various degrees of cooler fall or even winter weather. We're continuing our conversation that we started up uh, in the first segment with uh, Dr. Ron Ross, the fellow at NIST. Uh, But first, let's have a quick announcement. We have very exciting news about the Security Weekly webcast program. We're now partnered with ISC Squared as an official CPE provider. If you attend any of our webcasts, you will receive one CPE credit per webcast. Register for one of our upcoming webcasts, either with ServiceNow, GreatHorn, or Core Security, or you can join all of them by going to SecurityWeekly.com. You click on the Webcast drop-down option and then select Registration. Also, if you've missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find our on-demand library by selecting on-demand from the webcast drop-down, and you can earn CPEs for listening to any of the webcasts that are in our library. So, Getting back to our conversation with Ron, we left off with uh, Dr. Ross giving us his definition of compliance and very much involving a a risk framework. Uh, I wanted to to sort of set up the, the second half of the conversation. Uh, by asking a very pointed question, Ron. Uh, Having started out in the government, and I I happen to be at NSA very much the same time period you were, uh, very much remember the Orange Book, and I I forget the exact quote, but there used to be a saying about the Orange Book that we had within the hallowed halls, something to the effect of, it was the greatest uh, standard that would never actually be followed by anyone. my question is simply coming from sort of the commercial world perspective the the private sector uh despite the best efforts and certainly not making any commentary on the content or the breadth or the depth of any of the NIST publications and and, and frameworks and and standards that they've put out uh but quite frankly why in any why or how does anyone in the private sector uh, care about first security or even risk or, or you know following any of the things that NIST produces?
1: Well, again, a great question. I think the, the whole notion of why does anybody care about security, uh, that's been the age-old question even going back uh, when I first started 30 years ago. I think to me what's happened, and this gets back to some of the work that you all do with your podcasts, and you mentioned ISC Squared, and there's ISSA and all these professional associations. I think one of the first jobs that we all have to be responsible for is in educating our customers and trying to understand um, a little bit more about what make, what drives their mission requirements and their needs. For a long time now, we've been pushing security up the hill and trying to convince the senior leaders and mission owners that, you know, we are doing great stuff and you've got to adopt everything we're doing. And I think the the way that you succeed in that uh, type of conversation is you have to put yourself in the mission owner's place. We are here as security professionals to serve the organization and the mission. And our job is to help the mission be successful. And that goes whether you're a warfighter or a Fortune 500 company. And so the, this whole notion of how we've rolled out security. And, and again, we have to understand, all of us, that we have we have been witnessing the most, um, the ra- most rapid technological revolution ever in, in the history of mankind. And just in the last five or 10 years, some of the technologies that have rolled out, we're now deploying a, an incredibly complex infrastructure of hardware, software, uh, firmware, systems, applications, and all of this ubiquitous connectivity. And I think that's the part that I think, it, I, I characterize this problem as one of above the waterline and below the waterline most of our security people and our organizations work above the waterline. You, you know, the controls, the encryption, the access control mechanisms, the PIV cards, two-factor authentication, all of those things are things that enterprises do above the waterline to help build a more secure system and to protect their assets. But as you mentioned, in the private sector, there's a whole industry out there producing all of this great technology and all that complexity comes out of all those individual components that are basically hooked up together. And to make the problem even more <laughs> exacerbating is that we now have the, the total or almost complete convergence of cyber and physical systems. Whereas in the old days, when I first started out, we had the blue screen of death. And if something happened on the computer side, it was bad, but people weren't dying. Now with that convergence of cyber and physical systems, which adds also to the complexity, you now have software controlling critical critical systems like the brakes on automobiles or in power plants. There's a whole range of pacemakers. And so I think this is going to be a um, a gradual educational process because most of the people in organizations, unless you've actually been attacked and you've seen either exfiltration where you've had uh, IP that gets stolen or the system capability has been taken down, or you found that malicious code, you know, a year or two after it was placed in the system, all of that flies below the radar. And you can be reading about these terrible cyber attacks every day, like at OPM and the Navy sub program and Equifax and Target. And you read about it, it's a bad thing. And then you're back to business the next day. And you're talking about cybersecurity in the boardroom. But Going from that discussion down to the operator level, what are you actually doing to change the game uh, on, on the front lines? That to me is gonna be uh, a joint discussion and problem of both the, the public sector and the private sector. We kind of have to work together to increase people's understanding of what happens inside the black box. That's the metaphor that I use for your smartphone or your tablet. All of us are consumers of that technology but we view it through a user interface and most people don't have a clue what goes on inside the black box that's where the adversaries live and unless we can manage and reduce that complexity using good system security engineering techniques uh, secure coding techniques security design principles this is the primary reason why we went into our whole new series of engineering documents to try to help define what it looks like below the waterline so you can develop components and products that are as secure and trustworthy as they need to be. But it, it all goes back to education in my view. So
2: Ron, you brought up, uh, right before we went to the break, you were talking about the risk management side of this. And now you're talking about the relationship with the business, right? And I think a lot of what we as practitioners need to do a better job of is understanding the mission of the business, right? Understand what the business goals and objectives are how to align a security program that protects against certain risks so that the business can complete its mission in the federal space that seemed to be a lot easier to to kind of mandate with fips 199 to 200 et cetera. what i don't see is that same philosophy taken in the in the in the private sector where we should do a risk management framework, alignment, and then I think we'd be in much better shape. But I'm just curious on your thoughts on that for a second, because I think that's where the crux of it begins.
1: Well, it's a problem. I mean, I think every organization, and this is where I don't think there's a real distinction between public and private sector. I know we try to draw that line, but when you think about it, we're all really just organizations with missions trying to accomplish those missions in a fairly hostile cyber environment with all this complexity. And it's true that we had our risk management framework early. We've had all of our security controls and the private sector, but they do now have the cybersecurity framework, and they have kind of the, the overarching structure. But to me, this is a going to be a, a much different type of an environment. For example, like in cyber warfare, has really changed the whole nature of warfare. You know, it used to be you had to defend the country in the kinetic space, and you had tanks and missiles and all, but now the fact these computers are embedded into all those weapon systems and those those computers and the software is highly vulnerable, that provides a key attack vector so the adversaries may never have to get to the kinetic space. That fundamental understanding by senior leaders, and this could apply also to Fortune 500 companies, it's just sitting down with their security engineers and instead of like at OPM, where you look at that cyber attack, the adversary, the Chinese were in that OPM system for seven months before they discovered that 22 and a half million records were gone. Uh, my, my feeling is that if you were able to sit down with your security engineers and your team, I call this the integrated project team that includes the mission owners, all the people who are stakeholders and the professionals who understand literally how to protect these systems from the ground up, not just sticking a firewall there and saying we're done but looking at the architecture, how all the different components are interfacing. And this gets down to one fundamental concept, understanding as I quote, criticality analysis, understanding in your organization, what things are critical, what data is critical, what systems are critical, what system components are critical, and then separating those and treating those different than everything else in the organization. We typically try to apply everything, all of our controls in a big flat file concept to try to protect everything to the highest degree. And that is always going to fail because we don't have enough people, enough money to bring those critical systems up to the, everything up to that level of protection. But we do have the ability to focus on the critical systems. And I wanted to go back to one comment you made about the Orange Book because that was the, uh, that was the, the kind of the Bible back in the day of how to build a trusted operating system. And we've actually had vendors back in, this is in the late 80s, early 90s, building very highly assured operating systems. There's kernel-based operating systems up to the level of A1, which was basically an operating system built to stand up against subversive adversaries, the biggest, the baddest of the adversaries. But the problem is, as the commercial technology went forward, we started to build these general purpose operating systems because we valued functionalities. You know, The customers want more functions and features and that's what industry moved toward. And if we could go back to, it's kind of like the Finn client mentality, figure out what's critical and then take the appropriate steps to engineer, build stronger, more penetration resistant, more resilient solutions just for that critical piece of the enterprise. And that is actually something that's doable. It, it's affordable. Um, it, it, I, we used to have a joke at the NSA called the trusted garage door opener it only does one thing it opens up and closes the garage door that's all it does but it does it with a high degree of assurance it always it never fails but in order to do that you've got to reduce the the code and get it to be a manageable set of code that you can actually either verify that that, that it's correct through formal methods or some other types of analyses that that lend that level of assurance that we don't have in some of these big bloated systems that are in critical applications. It's a real problem today and we have to come to grips with that.
3: So, uh, uh, Dr. Ross, thank you for joining us. Uh, It's greatly appreciated. I have two questions for you. Okay. Uh, The first one is, with the the advent of all of these embedded systems being put into everything that we do in our everyday life, there is a major juxtaposition between what is a product versus what can we use as data for a product, right? So what, and the, the real crux of that is privacy, right? So My first question is, is what is NIST doing to address privacy in all of these systems? And then the second question, as a follow-on to it, is where do we start with untangling the spaghetti that is all of the NIST publications, right? You know, it's easy to say, well, FIPS this, FISMA that, but... In reality, is there some hierarchical chain that one can follow in going down through all of the uh, uh, all of the different publica- publications uh, that can uh, help not only identify but contain risk?
1: Yeah, again, a great question. I think there is a we, we have a lot of content on our website, and I do understand that there's a lot of there's a lot of volumes in the NIST standards and, and the special publications. And, you know, look, at I think one of the realities of our business is that there is always going to be some level of complexity in trying to lock down and protect systems. We're talking about literally hardware and software and integrated circuits and firmware and a huge amount of co- complex components. So let me let me address your your kind of your first question and then move into the second question about what do you do to untangle the mess with regard to privacy? NIST has had a program a footprint in privacy going back to 2013. As you might recall, that was in NIST Special Publication 853 Revision 4. That was the first time we added a, a privacy appendix. It was Appendix J. It had eight families of privacy controls, and that was our first attempt to move privacy into the discussion. It was actually coming into a one of our flagship publications, NIST 853. Over the last several years, We've been committed to fully integrating privacy into the FISMA suite of standards and guidelines. And you might have seen in December of last year in 2018 we published the risk management framework I call it RMF 2.0. It was NIST 837 Rev2 and that was a fully integrated set of privacy and supply chain risk management tasks and activities into what used to be just a cyber, security framework. So now we're moving toward more of that enterprise wide risk management mentality where you can use a single framework, the risk management framework, but yet you can manage risks for cybersecurity, privacy, and supply chain. So that was the first big step in addressing the process of how privacy professionals can use a framework to select the appropriate privacy controls to get in that level of privacy protection within the enterprise. The next thing that we've done, and you haven't seen this yet, but hopefully it's coming soon, is in 853 Rev. 5, we have fully integrated privacy into the a unified control catalog. In other words, we took all of those eight privacy uh, family, control families in Rev. 4, and those controls were distributed throughout a unified catalog. We now have 20 families of controls in 853 Rev. 5. Only one of those families is a privacy family. The other privacy controls went to our program management family because they're deployed more at the enterprise level. And then a lot of the privacy controls disappeared in what I call dual use controls. For example, a previous control AT2, it used to be called security awareness and training. That was a a control in our, our AT family. We dropped the word security and now that control AT2 is just awareness and training. And in the discussion section, it talks about developing awareness and training programs for cybersecurity and also for privacy. It brings those two communities together to work collaboratively together so they can develop one unified program that addresses both security and privacy concerns. Because we traditionally, these communities have been very separate and we're all using the same technology. So now that gets to your other question about how do you untangle the mess? when you've got all of these IoT components and all of that complexity. So my answer is gonna be kind of twofold. I believe there's not a defined hacking order for the NIST standards and guidelines. However, if we're talking about the FISMA uh, project in particular, I believe that you can always start with the framework, the risk management framework. That's the process document. And the purpose of that is to try to achieve due diligence for cybersecurity or privacy or supply chain risk management and how we do that is through our, our seven step process within the RMF. It's kind of like the guardrails. it helps our customers understand how to go through this process of categorizing data, figuring out what's critical and then coming back and trying to understand uh, how do you, which controls do I need to pick to satisfy those uh, that those requirements, if you will, the categorization concerns, and then going through that, that normal life cycle process of implementation, assessing controls for effectiveness, and then coming to some kind of an authorization decision where the senior leaders have to understand and accept risk before we go into this thing called continuous monitoring. So that's the way I would start. I'd always start with the framework and then the framework will lead you to the other standards and guidance documents like I described before. Talking about contingency planning, we've got a special pub that can do a deep dive on that. We talk incident response. We have a pub that talks about how you develop incident response plans, cryptography. We've got publications on, for VIPS 140. How do you do uh, cryptographic algorithms and all of the things that you kind of start at the highest level, 30,000 feet, and you build that program down to ground. And so the complexity comes in as you drill down closer and closer to the topic at hand. And I think if you look at it from that perspective, it's a lot less intimidating And it also really bodes well for that life cycle process and how you do those kind of things that are kind of a natural thing that engineers do and people who've been building systems have done for a long time. Um, And the last thing I'll say about the privacy is we have a brand new privacy framework, which is being developed by our privacy team. It's going to look a lot like the cybersecurity framework, although it'll have the distinct characteristics of a privacy framework. Using the CSF and the privacy framework in conjunction with our unified control catalog in 853 Rev 5, that those are the kind of the basic tools that you can use to sort through all this complexity and try to build a program that makes sense for your organization.
3: So, is that 850 or 834
1: Rev 2? Is that correct? Um, you, this is 853. You're talking about the control catalog.
3: The privacy.
1: Oh, the privacy, that, uh, that's a framework, and okay. that, uh, that framework doesn't have a number. It's kind of going to be like the cybersecurity framework. It's not going to be a FIPS, not going to be an SP, not going to be a, an internal interagency report. It's just going to be the privacy framework. It'll sit externally facing, just like our cybersecurity framework is today.
0: Cool. Hey, Josh, um, you there? Yeah. Let's, let's let Josh ask a question. Yeah, I'm here. Jump in. You got something to ask? I,
4: I, I, a statement first. Okay. Yeah, a statement first. Jesus, uh, um, I'm worried.
2: And there goes his Wi Fi.
0: And we lost him. All right. Scott, any more questions?
2: Hey, hey Josh,
3: why don't you come back in here and we'll, we'll swap out places? You jump on my headphones.
0: Seriously. (laughs) We'll splice you in. It's
3: high tech. Here we go. Gotcha. Josh, why don't you come back in and jump on my headphones? (laughs) Hang on. Yeah, bear with us for one second, guys.
2: So uh, uh, on a side note, I, I mean, it's great that Privacy is now getting integrated into 853, because now now there's a now there's a standard control catalog that that addresses this, and by integrating those two pieces together, I think it'll make it a lot easier for folks to address. Um, it'll be I, I'd, I I'll wait to see what the privacy framework looks like because again, I'd love to see the NIST cybersecurity framework and the privacy framework also maybe uh, get a little tighter instead of having two separate frameworks because. The, the challenge with that and what I've seen is somebody will gravitate to one or the other and they won't account for both of them.
1: Well, I think that's true. I think in everything that we do, you've probably seen this over the course of time, it's an evolutionary process. We, we start out, if you remember back in 2003 or four, things look a lot different in 853 today than they did back then. I think we learn as we go. We, we work a lot with our customer base, both on the federal side and the private sector and maybe someday those two frameworks will come together. Uh, I believe it's possible, but you know they're coming from two different communities. That's something the privacy community has been doing these things for a long, long time. I think the Privacy Act goes back to 1974, and it even predated all the FSMA stuff. So you've got two different communities, they're different disciplines, and you know a lot of people don't realize there is a strong overlap in the two communities On our cybersecurity side, we have confidentiality, integrity, and availability are our three primary objectives for cybersecurity. The privacy side really overlaps with us in the confidentiality aspect. We're both concerned with unauthorized disclosure of personally identifiable information. So even in the the old FIPS, the Fair Information Practice Principles, one of the eight FIPS was actually security. So that overlap has, has been there since day one. The thing that makes it different in 853 Rev 5 is that privacy, the community is also concerned about the authorized uses of PII. How much data can I collect on you? What can I use it for? How long should we keep it? All of those things are directed at controls for the authorized people who have access to that data. So you can see well, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. We overlap in that common area of. Unauthorized disclosure of PII, but then we've got things that we do on the security side that they don't really get involved in. They've got things on their side with the authorized use of PII that they are involved in that we would never be involved in. But together, it blends into a nice uh, set of activities that we can work together on that common base of technology that we're all using.
4: So, Dr. Ross, this is Josh. How you doing? Hey, Josh. Um, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I I, I love I've got to tell you, I love how you seamlessly transitioning between discussing executive level risk and risk management all the way down to control placement on a technologist level. And that that different level of of controls, of risk, of handling all of the problems and compliance and security together has been fascinating to watch and listen to. So thank you. It's lovely. Uh, One of the things we always talk about is communication and how to communicate between the different levels, from the board to the executives to the line management to the staff. And that is a problem in our industry, as you probably well know. So uh, I'm curious, what horror stories do you might have about communication and about uh, uh, problems that you've seen with that type of issue uh, in the actual workforce, in the actual real world, if you will?
1: Well, gosh, we we never would like to talk about the individual agencies because I visit all of them routinely and I, I know all the people there. So I'll just I'll kind of keep the, the discussion in more of the general context. The first thing I would say is the communication and leadership. I have a slide in my deck that talks about leadership, governance and accountability. I said those are three things that really can make or break a a good cybersecurity program. We don't talk about those things a lot, but leadership, governance, and accountability. If you've got those three things in in a very strong way in an organization, it's really hard to fail, but communication is critical. The thing you just pointed out and I go back, I think that when it comes to cybersecurity and this gets back to the education of our senior leaders and, and, that, that education has to take place before they can communicate, but they have to understand there is a problem and and not just talk about it in the boardroom, but the I talked about the two role models that I use, NASA and NASCAR. At some point, uh, President Kennedy, who was the commander-in-chief back in 1961, said, you know, we're going to go to the moon and do other things by the end of this decade, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. That was in response to a kinetic existential threat from the old Soviet Union. There was a hot missile race going on. But that vision by the president then was communicated down all the way through the NASA leadership and all the way down to uh, the, the lowest level people. And in fact, uh, one of President Kennedy's famous stories that I, I love to tell, and I've seen him tell it many times, their film uh, of him telling the story. And of course, it's gone down uh, through the annals of the years. People have retold it is that he visited NASA one day and he ran into a janitor pushing a broom down the hall. And the president goes up to the janitor and says, "Um, sir, what is your job here at uh, NASA? And he said, Mr. President, I am helping to put a man on the moon. So that to me is the ultimate example of how you communicate the senior leader's vision down to the implementer. That janitor on the floor knew in his mind he was doing his job, and no matter what his job was, it had a part in the overall success. That's what's missing, I believe, in our discussions with the boardroom. We we have great people. They're very competent on the leadership side. We have great people on the cybersecurity side of the house. We have great technologists, great technology. But it takes that communication from the senior leader in the boardroom, the C-suite, all the way down to that implementer. And that's, to me, is what's missing. How do we get better? I think education, training, and awareness, things like you guys do with the podcast, the IC Squared, ISSA, um, our, our NICE initiative, the National Initiative on Cybersecurity Education, we just have to have a discussion with eyes wide open and really get serious about the kinds of threats we're facing, the complex issues, and how The technology has fundamentally changed everything about how we operate as a society. And the previous threats that we had in the kinetic space are totally different now. As you go below that waterline, it's a pretty scary place down there when you've got, as you called it, the spaghetti code. I think you were referring to the NIST pubs, but we have that spaghetti stuff going on below the waterline. And that's pretty scary from a system security engineer's perspective.
0: Well, that's... uh that's an amazing analogy it's something that i try to articulate when i'm out giving talks at conferences and speaking to people i i usually call it I, i think you'd agree that it's really a culture of security i mean if the janitor at nasa Feels like he's part of putting a man on a moon. That's the type of culture that more organizations need to have. That you know, no matter what your role is, large or small, it all fits into this larger picture of, you know, whatever the company's mission is. But you know, how risk in this thing we call cybersecurity fits together Absolutely. with
1: it. Right. You know, there, just one other point I, I wanted to make about uh, this notion of ROI. A lot of the times, our security decisions there's an ROI question, the senior leaders say, what's this gonna cost me, and how much is it gonna reduce my risk? And that's a, that's a logical question, I think you can ask for maybe 90% of the, the cases out there, but I go back also, another story that I like to tell is about the development of our nuclear triad, the bombers, the missiles, and the submarines that were, these things, this capability was developed back in the late 50s, early 60s. And it was, surprisingly enough, we didn't do a risk assessment back in those days it was kind of an inherent threat. We understood that there was a Soviet Union back then that could launch a first strike against the United States. And we had to have the ability to do a second strike after absorb the first strike and then counter with a second strike. It was kind of a, the doctrine was called mutual assured destruction. But that was a kinetic threat, existential threat. And the hard thing today, and and we actually developed that capability, which was the most expensive military investment the country ever made. If you were to look at the likelihood component of that capability ever being used, you have the threat, the vulnerability, the impact in this case, and this is where critical assets need to be looked at differently. The impact was the freedom in our way of life, the United States of America. That was the impact of not making that investment in the nuclear triad, the most expensive thing we ever did. Now, the likelihood that that capability would ever actually be used was probably less than one-tenth of 1%. It was extremely low. But the reason we did that is because you can't make mistakes with critical assets where you've got these valuable, people are going to die, the country's going to go under, you can lose your freedom. There are certain things that you don't have to worry about the likelihood because it's a critical asset and it's all about the impact. And that's what engineers do when they build systems. They understand the critical components, where the single points of failure are, and they engineer those solutions where they can actually survive and be resilient. That's the kind of mentality we're trying to push with our new engineering series.
0: Wow. Uh, we're just all sitting here in awe of all the wisdom that, that Dr. Ross is throwing at us. Uh, unfortunately, we need to wrap. We could go all day. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much from all of us, uh, Dr. Ross, for, for being on our show today. With that, we're going to call it. This is episode four, Security and Compliance Weekly. You guys have a great day.